we love Reality Church. We love Carlos Lolette and his family. He is the most, I told you this last time, the most lovable and the most huggable pastor in America. If you were here a couple weeks ago, he preached for me in the one series, and you can see why God is blessing his church and his ministry. Uh, we love Miami, right? We all wish that we were in Miami right now. It's a great time of year to be in Miami. I was in Miami in April with Carlos and I had a little bit of time, I was down there for a different event, and he said, I gotta give you a tour of the city. And Miami's huge, as you guys know, and Miami's got one big idol, right? Every city's got one big idol. And the one big idol in Miami is vanity, right? Everybody's obsessed with how they look. It's all about the external, and that's hard because Christianity's about the internal. And so, anyway, he's taking me around the city, and at the time, he's meeting in a movie theater, and he points as we're in this key location in the city, and he points to a building, and he said, that building right now has an open spot. We might be able to get that building, uh, but I don't know if we can afford it. I said, well, you need to get a phone call with me and Pastor Dave, and we got a phone call with them, and we said, you guys can't afford not to do this. And so what they did was they leveraged everything they had to get into a 24-7 permanent facility that they're now running two services that are packed, looking for a third service, and so it, we're excited, guys. So here's what we're going to do. They're going to be our main national partner for Hold the Rope. We talked about Hold the Rope last year, last week. Yes, yes, we're excited. Uh, yeah, so our local partner is, is oh, we got many partners, but the partner we talked about last week is the prison ministry, and our main national partner is going to be Reality Church. What we like to do, if you're new, is whenever a church plant gets their first home, like, you know, their permanent home. We like to be like the great generous parents that say, hey, look, let's help you get into your first home. They leverage like everything they had to get in this building. And so what we wanna do is we wanna give them a one-time gift at the beginning of January to let them go further faster in this new building. So here's what we're asking for you guys. If you're a part of two cities, we want, we want 100% participation. We want everybody here to give it just a one-time gift above and beyond normal tithes and offerings by the end of the year. And then we're gonna call them at early January. We're gonna say, God has blessed us. We wanna be a blessing to you and we believe in what you're doing. So I hope you'll be a part of that. Uh, by the way, speaking of buildings and their building, we had an incredible pray two prayer nights, Wednesday and Thursday. Who was there at that? Yes, lots of you. All right, I got some pictures behind me, guys. Listen, so many of you came Wednesday night. I thought, is anyone coming Thursday? We filled up like every parking lot, and then Thursday night, it was packed again, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of you praying with families and couples and community groups. Uh, listen, guys, uh, we're still on schedule for December 17th, and if, you know, I've used all these different illustrations and metaphors, but if getting into this building is like launching a rocket into orbit, we turned on the engines at the prayer night. It was awesome, guys. Thank you for being there. Uh, we're on schedule for December 17th. Pray for us. It's going to be a sprint to the finish line. But I've got some pictures for those of you maybe who didn't get to see everything. Let me show you, look at that. With the signs on the bill, oh, it looks beautiful. How about the other side? Look at that. The, we just sprinkled the building with a little bit of orange. You see it in the corners? There you go. <laughs> we use that orange sparingly. Okay, let's go inside. Oh, yes. Okay, those, those orange seats are for our VIP member. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Okay, guys, look, look at that. Look, let's go to the next one. Guys, okay, that's, that's the VHQ. That's the volunteer headquarters. For those of you that serve, yes. All right. Oh, it's so beautiful, guys. Oh, yes. And then let's go to the, uh, that's the lobby, 40-foot ceilings being designed. Oh, yeah, that'll be finished this week. Oh, look at that hair and bone pattern. Oh, yes. And the kids, yes. Okay, guys, listen, we're so close. Pray for us, pray with us. Get ready. We only have, I mean, last night was our third to last, Lord willing, Saturday night service. 
uh, in this building, guys. And so we're just, uh, you know, we're very, very excited about where God's leading us. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll dive in to uh, another parable this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's an exciting time. Uh, as I said at the prayer night, let us never take for granted what is happening to us and what we're getting to experience. There, I mean, the amount of pastors, Christians, churches across church history that wishes they had 13 acres in downtown. Lord, it's with fear and trembling and eager expectation and hope that we move toward this building. So I just pray that each of us would be praying this prayer as we get ready. Lord, get me ready for what you're about to do. Lord, I thank you for the people here who have given, who have served, who have prayed, who have invited. We are entering into an entire new season, may I dare I even say new era of our church as we head into this building. We pray to get in there before the end of this year for your glory and our good. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, you've heard of C.S. Lewis probably. I mean, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and he wrote Mere Christianity and he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. He wrote a lot of books. But he has a famous quote. He says, um, everybody thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Today, guys, I'm gonna talk about forgiveness. And whenever I talk about forgiveness, everyone says, yes, other people should forgive other people. But it's very, very hard. Like, we love forgiveness. If you watch a movie on forgiveness and somebody forgives somebody or you hear a story of forgiveness, you will, if it's a serious enough thing that's forgiven, you'll get emotional and you'll get the quiver in your liver, okay? You'll be like, oh, that's amazing. But uh, really, the hard thing about forgiveness, we'll dive into this a little bit, is like forgiveness and justice are often in tension. And so a lot of people are like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I like the idea of forgiveness, but I also like revenge. And I also like justice. And I also like people getting what they deserve. And guys, we have to talk about this today. And, and here's the truth. When I, I, you can type to Matthew 18, verse 15. I'll, I'm gonna meet you here in about probably five minutes. Um, here's the thing about forgiveness. Um, forgiveness is something that our culture today doesn't understand. And, and whenever our culture doesn't understand anything because we've lost the Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview, we always replace it with two extremes. And so instead of forgiveness, here's the two extremes of culture, and then we'll get to forgiveness. Uh, the two extremes of culture is first, the new fake tolerance. You know what I'm talking about? That's we approve and we celebrate and we act like everything's normal. What, what is that saying? There's nothing that needs to be forgiven. It's like, ah, okay, Christians can't say that. We're maybe the last people on earth who have to say that was wrong, that was sinful, Christ needed to die for it, and you need to repent of it. So the new tolerance is one way that we ignore forgiveness. We just act like there isn't sin anymore. Well, there is. The other is, the other extreme that you see on the left and the right, the Republicans and the Democrats is cancel culture, right? Which is basically this. I don't know what to do with you when you offend me. I don't know what to do with you when you've hurt me. And so here's what I'll do. I'll act like you're dead. I'll have nothing to do with you and I'll cancel you and I will define you by the worst thing you've ever done. Well, guys, we have to talk about forgiveness. Why do I have to talk about forgiveness? Well, one, it's a big you know, theme in scripture. That's one reason we'll talk about it. It comes up today. Number two, it's a big issue. So you need to get to know, if you don't know, our pastor of care, Jordan Taylor, great guy. And I said to him last night after the sermon, we were talking outside. I said, Jordan, I said, in all of your experiences counseling people, and how many of the counseling sessions, like give me a percentage, and how many of the counseling sessions does it eventually get down to an issue of forgiveness? He said 100%. They may not come in there for that. They got marriage issues. They got kid issues. They've got addiction issues. They got, 
And somewhere along the line, there's a need to forgive someone. So we gotta talk about it because the Bible talks about it. We gotta talk about it because some of you, and just warning, I'm gonna give you a chance to forgive uh, this morning. Don't worry, I'm not gonna make you stand up. I'm not gonna make you raise your hand. I'm not gonna, make, not, I'm gonna embarrass you, but I'm gonna give you a chance just so you can prepare yourself. In about 40 minutes, I'm gonna give you a chance to forgive. We gotta get through the whole sermon first. But, um, and here's the third reason. The third reason we have to talk about forgiveness is guys, it's the center of our faith. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I was down here singing with you guys just a few minutes ago. I mean, if you haven't noticed, all of the songs that we sing about are all about forgiveness. And that's gonna be the whole idea of the parable we're gonna to see today. It's like, how can I sing about and celebrate God's forgiveness to me and not share that with other people? Here's the big idea for the message and for the passage and parable we're gonna look at today. It's very simple. It's four words. Forgiven people forgive or to say it a little bit longer way, when you have experienced and embraced God's forgiveness of you vertically, when you've experienced and embraced it vertically, you will extend it horizontally. It's interesting. I mean, I don't want to get too deep into this. Some people would say the softer version would be this. You can't be a healthy Christian. This is the nice way to say it. You can't be a healthy Christian and be dealing with the root of bitterness and unforgiveness. That would be the nice way to say it. There are some who say from the teachings of scripture, it appears that if you, having, if you have an unforgiving heart, you might have an unforgiven heart. That the person who is unable to forgive, and we'll get into it, I know things happen to you. The person who is unable to forgive, it may be the sign that they're really not a Christian. Because when you experience the grace and mercy of God, it's so profound. It's going to affect how you deal with every person. Listen, forgiveness should make you a better person. You being forgiven should make you a better person, a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better father, a better friend. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me show you the background here. Matthew, Matthew 18, okay, here we go. Matthew 18, verse 15, we always do the circumstances around the parable first. Look here, if your brother, so he's talking to the Christian community, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Here's the first thing we need to know about forgiveness. We deal with forgiveness like a family. Do you see that? He's like, okay, your brother, okay? Because listen, you know this, but when you become a Christian, like the most basic thing you learn is God is my father, the church is my family. So now he uses familial language to talk about forgiveness. And the first thing he says is, if your brother sins against you, and we know it's not gonna be if, when is it gonna be? When, okay? So here's what I wanna tell you. You need to have the expectations for your life that you're gonna sin against other people and they're gonna sin against you. Look at your neighbor who you came with and say, you're gonna sin against me. It's a little awkward, but just tell them, tell them. Okay, they're gonna do it. Okay, it's okay, okay, okay. All right, all right, now come back together, okay? That's, you're, and this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna sin against them and they're gonna sin against you. In fact, here's how this works. The longer that you, uh, the more that you, how do I say it, sorry. The longer that you live, the more people that you're gonna need to forgive. The more people that you love and the longer that you live, the more people that you're going to forgive. Guys, Christians are like porcupines. We got all these little spikes. And if we get too close to each other, we poke each other, okay? So he says this, if your brother sins against you, now here's the problem. Sometimes I'm gonna get, so this is very practical, I think, very helpful today. Some of these categories I'm gonna give you for, for, for forgiveness. The first thing you have to ask 
Like as you put together the intellectual furniture of your mind and heart as you're dealing with like anger toward people and potential unforgiveness. The first thing you have to ask is, is this sin that this person did against me or is it strangeness? Okay? Is it against God's word or is it just weird? Is it an issue of integrity or is it an idiosyncrasy? Okay, so the big question is, is it sin or is it strangeness? Now this is going to surprise most of you. I'm a little strange, okay? I'm just a little, just a little bit, just a little bit. And uh, yes, amen. That, that's, that's somebody who's been on our launch team from the beginning, there it is. Okay, so here's how this works, guys. I, I am a little strange and you know, you, by the way, when you get married, you realize how strange you are. And I remember I was dating Margie and she said to me, Kyle, every time you hang up the phone, you never say goodbye. I don't know what I was doing. I just, instead of goodbye or talk to you, I just would, all right, and I'd hang up. And then I realized that's what my whole family does. <laughs> and so, okay, is it, is it a sin to hang up the phone without saying goodbye? No, okay. Is it strange? Yes, maybe. Um, it, you know, I still, I have a very loud voice, which hopefully, you know, God's using in preaching and teaching. But I, I just, I talk loud and I talk loud everywhere I go, especially when I shouldn't be talking loud. And my wife will have to say to me, what would be the nicest way to tell you that you are screaming right now? Is it a sin to yell? No. Okay, but you know, is it strange? Potentially, okay. So you gotta ask, is it sin or is it strange? And you will fight about this in your marriage all the time, okay? And by the way, sometimes if it's strangeness, you just need to realize that you are shallow and a little petty and a little oversensitive and you're way too easily offended. Right, that's what you got, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Then you have to ask, is it sin or is it weakness? That's different than strangeness. That's, is this a character issue or is this a competency issue? Lots of women think that their husbands are not very good listeners. My wife's never told me that. Or if I did, I wasn't listening, okay? Maybe. <laughs> now, here, now listen, there's two types of, there's like, now can being a bad, like can not listening be a sin? It can because I could be like, I don't care about you. I don't care what you say. I'm busy. You're not important to me. So somebody could be a bad listener and it can be a sin. And somebody could be a bad listener and it could seriously just be a weakness. It's like, you need to learn how to actively listen. How about make some listening noises? Mm, you know? <laughs> how about repeat back to the person what they said in a simplified form so that they agree? Well, that's the heart of communication. So, okay, so then you gotta ask, is it a sin or is it strangers? Is it a sin or is it weakness? That's the first thing. Then you've gotta find out, okay, so once you deal with that, as you think about your past, as you deal with forgiveness, there are three kind of main categories people have to deal with in my pastoral experience. Sometimes people need to forgive something massive that happened to them. I mean massive, and you'll know this because like it's an event and it still haunts you and you're, st you're still in some ways trapped, okay? This could be something very serious. Your dad left, sexual assault, somebody abused you, um, you were betrayed. There are some people and it's, it's what's hard to forgive is the massive nature of the event. We're gonna talk about that. That is, common but less common than what most people need to forgive is the many things someone did to them. 
death by a million paper cuts, right? This is why most marriages, why do marriages end? Not because people fall out of love, but because they fall out of forgiveness. The only way, you know this, to sustain any long-term, close, meaningful relationship is through forgiveness. So sometimes it's like uh, one thing they did, and it's a big deal, okay? Sometimes it's the many things, like I always told him, or she knows I hate that, or not again, right? And then sometimes, here's a third category, and sometimes they're all mingled together, but I'm just giving up some categories. Sometimes the third category, so it's not massive or many, but it's the man or woman who did it. Sometimes you'll struggle to forgive, not because of what was done, yes, but because of who did it. If your boss did it, it wouldn't be a big deal, but your dad did it, right? This is a lot of exes, right? You, you have any exes? You don't need to raise your hand, right? But an ex-boyfriend, an ex-fiance, an ex-husband, an ex-wife, a terrible relationship with your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle or brother or sister. And part of what makes it so painful is you're like, that was my sister. My friend can do that, but not my sister. Okay, so you gotta get that. Okay, what is it? Is it the person? Is it the thing? Is it the many things? Is it sin? Is it strangeness? And then you can do what Jesus tells us to do here. Let's look here. Here's what he says. If your brother, I'm gonna go back to verse 15, but also read verse 16. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So he's actually going to give us a pattern and paradigm, a multi-stepped approach to deal with this. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, look at this. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If we would do this, it would solve so many problems in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, and in our churches. Here's the second big thing, that we are to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible when we're dealing with sin. Here's a really simple way to say it. Remember, he says, okay, so if someone sins against you, he says, this is so simple, right? You're like, this is, this is something you would teach your kid. If somebody sins against you, you go to them. Here's another way to say it. Talk to people instead of about people. How many people, when they're sinned against, have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen the cringe-worthy social media post about somebody somebody else doesn't like? It's like a bad Yelp review. My uncle, you know, he, it's like, what is going on here? People go to the modern-day confessional booth, Facebook, <laughs> to tell the world how they've been wronged. Some people are a little bit, you know, they're a little bit more passive-aggressive in how they approach it and they might just gossip about that person now. Reputation destruction. Gossip is when you confess somebody else's sins without their approval. Some of you are a little bit more religious. I know how you do things. If you're angry at somebody, you just make it a prayer request. Pray for Timmy. He's so rude. <laughs> we need to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible the first thing that he says is talk to the person. So if somebody offends you at this church, we would just say, "What? don't come to a staff member. Don't come to your community group leader, unless that's the person who offended you. Go to that person first. Now, why, this is important to understand. Why do we keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible? 
because sin is meant to be covered. I mean, this is Genesis chapter three. Remember Adam and Eve, they're naked and our, our physical nakedness and our spiritual or moral nakedness is not meant to be shown to everybody. God's like, well, let's get some loincloths and cover this immediately. Here's the truth, and you know this. You can't handle knowing everybody else's sin. I mean, it would wear us all out. And, and nobody can handle knowing all of your sin. It's very, very hard on people, right? Because what will happen sometimes is, you you know, I'm trying, you know, I'm just like you guys. It's like, I'm, yes, I'm a pastor. Yes, I'm trying to be a godly Christian and all that. But if someone comes to me and they tell me something about their husband, just some horrible thing, or something about their wife, some horrible thing, it's hard for me to look at that person the same. Is it hard for you? It's like, I'm trying, but thank you. Thank you for telling me that horrible secret in their life that I now know and I try to put to the back of my mind every time I'm interacting with them, but it kind of pops up. So here's how it works. Here's the principle. The only people who should know about a sin are the people who can see that same person restored. So usually in the, in the best circumstances, it's a few people and everybody in the church, else in the church has no idea what's going on. Yeah, there's three ladies working with her. You know, she's got, she's got a problem with alcohol, but nobody needs to know that. And, and, the, and the three people that knew how bad the problem was gets to rejoice with her at how great she's doing now. See what happens is every once in a while, you know, and it could be the wife, it could be the husband. They're in a community group and this happens with a certain personality and temperament. Like they're overly emotional and they think being vulnerable and authentic, or authentic means to, you know, proverbially throw up on people and tell them everything at once. Have you ever met? Yeah, yeah. And so they, they don't even mean to but they throw their husband under the bus or they throw their wife under the bus. And then here's what happens in churches. Then like everybody just remembers the worst thing about that person. Like, well, you know what she did, right? It's like, yeah, but what you don't know is that she repented of that six months ago and has been walking in a measure of freedom. And she's actually the godliest version of herself and more like Christ and God's used it to redeem a bunch of other areas in her life. And now she's helping other people with the same struggle. Well, you don't know that. You just know the thing that she did. So you have to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Well, look what happens here. If he refuses to listen to them, so remember he says, take one and take two more, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him to be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. I don't have time to get into this, but this is really church discipline. This isn't a sermon on church discipline. Here's what I'll tell you, just so you know about our church. 99% of sin in this church is dealt with either by one person talking or two or three people talking to someone. Every once in a while, the person doesn't repent, and it makes it up to the church leadership of the church, and it almost never goes well, just so you guys know, unfortunately. Because think about it. If someone confronted you, right? If you, if you are spiritually alive as a Christian, someone confronted you, the first thing you should say is, oh, my goodness, I am so sorry. Thank you. But if, you're, if, you're, if your heart, heart, heart is hard, if two or three more people came and said, dude, I agree with him, and I see you would say, oh my, I'm so, three of you? So I'm just telling you, by the time I get to the church, the person's heart is normally so hard that we normally have to say, listen, we uh, no longer can treat you as a Christian because we don't believe a Christian can live in this open, unrepentant sin that's been confronted. And so we're, we're gonna love you, but we're gonna love you in a new way, in a different way. We're not gonna love you as a brother or sister in Christ, but we're gonna love you as an unbeliever and our relationship with you is no longer an evangel discipling relationship, I'm sorry, it's an evangelizing relationship. So Jesus gives this, 
this may sound intense to some of you who aren't familiar with this stuff, but this is to protect the church so that sin doesn't spread and so that people know God takes sin seriously. Okay, so then here's what happens. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is rabbinical teaching. Again, I say to you, if two, uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who's in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a little bit of a confusing passage, but basically Jesus says that what he gives to the church is the ability, according to God's word, to extend forgiveness to people in Jesus' name. It's really powerful. If you, by the way, this is why I had a friend tell me that when he grew up, his parents always told him, if someone sins against you and they ask for forgiveness, you don't say it's okay. You say, I forgive you. Powerful. But look what happens here. Now, Peter, of course, look at verse 21. Then Peter, of course, Peter, came up and said, Lord, how many, how often will my brother sin against me? It's like, okay, you're not really worried about you sinning against your brother, Peter, but that's okay. And I forgive him as many as seven times. So Peter says, okay, how, give me a number. This is the same thing we talked about last week with the priest and the Levite. He wants to limit grace and he wants to measure forgiveness, which is the temptation for all of us. How many times should my wife sin against me or my husband sin against me and I forgive them? Give me a number. Is it seven? And Peter thought he was being generous because the rabbinical tradition of that day said three times. He says seven times. Now look what Jesus says. Here's how Jesus went. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, some of your translations say seven times 70, or some of your translations say 77 times seven. It's like, well, what's up with these Bible translators? Can't they get this right? It's because Jesus made up a word. He made up a number. Here's how we would say it today. How many times should I forgive? A bazillion. <laughs> to infinity and beyond. That's what we're saying, okay? So he's like, you, you, you just, you never get over or give up on forgiving people. Now, like Jesus often does, he tells us a statement, then gives us a story. He gives us a principle that we, like, what? And then he gives us a picture. So now, here, look at the parable with our time left. Here's what he says. Uh, therefore, here's the parable now. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So this would often happen. At any time, you know, we don't understand this because we don't under, live under this kind of monarchy. But anyway, the, the king would come and say, whoever owes me, I could, if I need something, I could call upon this person and ask them to immediately pay. So that's the whole idea. So they get this. This makes sense. Uh, verse 24, when he began to settle, account, began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now the disciples are listening and they're like, okay, this is obviously a made up story because no one could owe 10,000 talents. A talent was the largest monetary unit of measurement in that day. One talent was 20 years wages. So just by doing basic math, you know that 10,000 talents would be 200,000 years wages. Okay, if it's not immediately obvious, when you probably know this story, God is the king and we are the servant in this story. What God is saying is we owe a debt to God that we cannot calculate, we cannot count, we cannot comprehend, and we certainly cannot pay back. For all the sins of omission and commission, for breaking God's law, for all the good deeds left undone, for being ungrateful and unthankful, for all of our idolatry and false worship, I mean, just you add it all up and it's 
incalculable. But we, okay, and we have to get that first. That's, that's key. Okay, so here's what happens. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, he with his wife and children and all that they had, and payment to be made. See, this is what sin does. Sin makes you guilty, and then it makes you dirty, and then it makes you enslaved. Those are the three things sin will do to you long term. It makes you guilty, and you'll, make sure you'll wake up at three in the morning and your conscience will condemn you. And It'll make you dirty. You'll feel like, ugh. And then it'll make you enslaved, and the modern word for that's addicted. And so there, he's giving us this picture. Okay, he's guilty. He's indebted. He's going to be enslaved now. And here's what happens. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. So he's trying to pay it back. He can't, though. And out of pity, here's the first plot twist. The master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. This has been a sermon on forgiveness, and I haven't even defined forgiveness yet, but I wanted to wait till we got to this point. Biblically, what forgiveness is, is I cancel the debt you owe me because of Christ. Or another way to say it, how do you know you've forgiven someone? I don't make you pay with my passive-aggressive temperament toward you, with the silent treatment, with the cold shoulder, with bringing it up at strategic moments a couple times a year to still make you feel guilty about it. And, and it's, so I don't understand. Maybe there's another talk by somebody else who tells Americans how they can forgive. I don't know how someone can forgive deeply and horrible things that happen to them unless they have, unless they're a Christian, they have the Christian worldview because here's what we believe. Why do I say you cancel the debt because of Christ? Because here's what you can say if somebody sinned against you. I'm gonna trust God with this because either Christ died for it, it's gonna be paid for one of two places. Christ either died for it or it'll be paid for in the lake of fire. You know, the, this is why theology is very important. It's like, okay, Jesus died for it and paid for it. I don't need to also try now to make them pay for it. And if they're not a believer and they're, they're completely rebellious, it's like, they're going to pay for this one day. I don't need to try to add to it here. So forgiveness is canceling the debt because of Christ. It's making someone not pay for it. It's absorbing the cost, right? I mean, think about this king. He now has to figure out how to get 10,000 talents or he just absorbs it. Every once in a while, my kids will break something in the house. And maybe they were being foolish or sinful in doing it. And they break something. I'm making something up. And say it costs 20 bucks. Well, they have $4, you know, in their accounts. And so they ask for forgiveness, and I forgive them. But guess who has to pay for it? Me. That's what happens. It's like, all right, God is going to forgive, but somebody else is going to, God himself is going to have to pay for it. So that's what forgiveness is. But I want to talk about what forgiveness is not, because it brings up a lot of confusion with people. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. There are some people who are never going to apologize to you. They don't even know they did anything wrong. They think you got over it. You're letting certain people live rent-free in your mind, okay? There are some people who are never going to apologize for a very profound reason. They're dead. I have met people who are haunted. It's like by their dad who died 10 years years ago, 
It's like, listen, obviously he's never going to apologize. So you're going to have to not wait for the apology. Secondly, forgiveness is not a feeling. You're, I just wanna tell you this, you're not gonna wake up one day and decide, today's the day. I feel like forgiving. I had my muffin, it's time to forgive my mother-in-law. You know? It's like, no, you haven't forgiven your mother-in-law for seven years. You're not gonna wake up and feel it. It's a decision of faith that sometimes God is gracious and feelings follow. Forgiveness is not forgetting what they've done or trusting them again. You could forgive your boyfriend and he could be your ex-boyfriend and you could break up with him. You could forgive your coworker and not work with your coworker anymore. You could forgive your business partner and not go into business with them anymore. You can forgive your abuser and still tell the police about him. I mean, we're not saying that there's no consequences in this life for what people have done. We're saying that what you need to do is you need to forgive, but it's not the same as forgetting or trusting. Um, forgiveness is not approving what they've done. In fact, in, in, a, in a profound way, forgiveness is actually saying this is such a big deal that, that I have to actually take it to God and it's an actual sin against me and I need to forgive. And finally, forgiveness is not something you do once. I heard the story about a lady and her husband, or her son, you can imagine this, how horrible this is. Her son was killed by a drunk driver. And she tells the story of like the moment, the, you know, the, the line you cross when you go, okay, I forgive him. But she said she still has to forgive the drunk driver on the anniversary of her son's death and on his birthday every year. So sometimes there's gonna be something that happens and then you're gonna have to remind yourself Self, I have forgiven them. And I'm actually gonna take another moment right now and just cancel the debt, and I'm not gonna make them pay, and I'm gonna move forward. Well, let me show you what happens here. It says, but, and this is, this is another surprise, but when that same servant, that would be the one who had 10,000 uh, talents canceled, went out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe, which is exactly what the unforgiven spirit says. Uh, notice a couple things. Number one, he was looking for somebody who owed him. How many of us, how many of you are still keeping score? That will not be good for your marriage or your family, right? Some of you, I've met people in their whole calendar is about what other people have done wrong to them. Well, it's November. You remember last November? Well, remember three years ago on my anniversary when you didn't? Oh, it's my birthday again. Remember 10 years ago? It's like, oh. Your whole calendar is about keeping score with what other people have done. Now, here's what I love about the honesty of this parable. Uh, the 10,000 talents is this massive, incalculable, incomprehensible, never could be paid back, and that's what we owe God. But a hundred denarii is a hundred, a denarii is a day's wage. So by basic math, you know it's a third of your salary, if, all right? So how would you feel if somebody owed you a third of your salary? Well, just percentage-wise, for all of us, that's gonna be a lot. So here's what I love. God's saying, hey, what other people have done to you is actually a big deal. 
But it's not as big of a deal as your sin against God. You have to realize that your sin against God is greater. So if you cheat on your taxes, yes, you're sinning against the government, but God's more angry. If you lie to your spouse and she finds out, she'll be angry. God's more angry. So when you have this idea that my sin against God is greater, like I remember I was a Duke and these Duke students, you know they are. They, they, this one Duke student thought he was real smart and so he came up to me and he said, how can a sin committed in a finite period of time, our life, deserve an infinite punishment? Now you've never thought of that question because nobody thinks of that question, okay? But he thought of that question. In other words, how can God punish me forever for something I did in time? That's actually, it's like, all right, well, man, you're not the first person to ask that question. The answer is who it's against. It's against an infinite God, so the punishment for it is infinite. So as soon as you realize, and I know as soon as I say our sin against God is bigger than our anyone's sin against us, everybody makes the Christian listening noises. Mm-hmm, right? But like, you, you actually have to get to the point where it's like, no, no, actually, that is true. I have offended and sinned against God more than anyone would ever offend or sin against me. And that's going to be the power and the motivation, okay? So what he has is gospel amnesia, okay? Somehow, you're like, it's so ridiculous, but this is what we do. You're like, wait, dude, hold on. How can you forget? Because in fact, as the story goes on, look here. Verse 29, you could copy and paste. This is exactly what the first servant said to the king. Exactly. And it's exactly what he did. So his fellow servant fell down. Oh, he should have been thinking, you know what? I remember I just fell down. And he pleaded with him. I, I remember I pleaded. He puts the same words in the servant's mouth. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debts. I wanna talk for a few minutes on why people don't forgive. You know, why? Now, again, it's hard to forgive. I've already said that. But we're complex. Why don't people forgive? Because there is a power that we can have over another person if we don't forgive them, especially if we're still in a relationship and, kind of, and especially if they have a sensitive conscience, especially if they feel bad about it, right? We can just play the moral superiority card. Well, I've never done that, but I know you have. And every time I you know, get a little angry at you, which is when I'm angry, I'll just remember about all the bad things you do. I'll remind you of this. And I've seen this happen in spouses, right? One of the spouses did something and they got caught or they confessed, you know, and it's been years. And usually, honestly, men have their own struggles. Usually I've seen in many situations, the wife just, she keeps reminding him. Sometimes you can see it on a guy. He walks into our church, I'm like, oh no. Oh no, he's a shadow and shell of whoever he used to be. And his wife keeps him on a very short leash. And this man is a prisoner in his own home. People don't forgive because it's powerful. It's powerful to be morally superior and to constantly remind other people of their sin. The second reason people don't forgive is it kind of feels good, right? I mean, you, you hate it and you love it because it's like a mixture of emotions. And, you know, if, if, you, if you forgive, you can't be resentful anymore. I mean, if you forgive, you can't be angry anymore. And if you forgive, you can't play the victim card anymore. 
And if you forgive, you can't be jealous anymore, right? And it's like, I kind of, you know, half of you loves that. It kind of gives you an energy in life, right? There's another reason. And this is particularly for men usually. Is unforgiveness gives people an excuse to be bad. Lots of men get addicted and specifically drink too much because of something undealt with in their past. And half of them is glad to have an excuse to be bad. We're always, you need to know this about yourself, you're always looking for an excuse to do something you know you shouldn't do. And so, you know, it's like, oh, you all, you know, if you'd forgive your dad, then you wouldn't have an excuse for drinking so much. If you'd forgive your wife, you wouldn't have an excuse for your fantasy life and all the things you're looking at. If you'd forgive your husband, you wouldn't have an excuse for lashing out on him and being bitter toward him. Well, I wanna show you what happens. We're almost done. 31, when his fellow servants, that's just the people watching, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Here's what I want you to know. When you're dealing with unforgiveness, everybody around you can see it. Lots of parents, usually dads, they have some type of unforgiveness and it it just has a negative effect on the entire home. And all the kids ever hear about is how horrible grandpa was. And it's like, dad or mom, like your unforgiving spirit is so obvious to everybody else. Well, here's how it ends. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servants. And here's the forgiven people forgive people. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? People who receive mercy should extend mercy. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. If you do not forgive, you will not like the person you will become. And you will be, metaphorically speaking, a prisoner. Corey Tin Boone, okay, who was in the concentration camps, and her sister died in the concentration camps. So I would put Corey Tin Boone on the top of my list on people who would need to learn how to forgive, okay? That would be top of my list. Somebody who was in the concentration camps whose sister died in the concentration camps. And she said, when I finally forgave, she said, I realized I had released a prisoner and the prisoner was me. Let me, let me tell you this. So you, this, is, this is the existential test of forgiveness, freedom. The test of forgiveness is do you have freedom? I no longer am angry at this person. I no longer am bitter toward this person. Maybe God would bless you so much that you could, I mean, this is what Jesus wants. Could you wish your enemy well? Could you pray for their salvation? Could you ask for their repentance? Guys, I want you to know that unforgiveness, the reason I'm talking about it with so many different things is I want you to know it's a serious sin. Like there are certain sins I mentioned, you go, oh, that's serious, Kyle. I mean, whoo, you know, stealing money or I don't know, adultery or murder. Those are serious. I'm trying to tell you unforgiveness is a serious sin. It's so serious. It's one of the only sins that's called demonic. So there's actually this verse in Ephesians where it says, uh, 
do not let there be a root of bitterness lest Satan get a foothold. Why would the demonic be especially interested in unforgiveness? Because, well, demons aren't forgiven and they never forgive. So if you need if you need to get out the root of bitterness, you're going to need to use the shovel of forgiveness, okay? So as we close, who, who do you need to forgive? Is it somebody in your past? Is it that event? Is it the many things? Is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it your brother? Is it your sister? Is it your ex? Whatever. Is it somebody in the present? And this is you know it because every time you see them, you feel it. You can't speak well of them. You have imaginary conversations with them in your head in which you win, right? So we all do. But I want to even end with something even more practical, which is how do you forgive? I want to give you four steps because you're going to need this or somebody you love is going to need these four steps when you when you finally realize that's it, it's him, it's my dad or whatever, here's what you have to do. The first thing you have to do, there's four steps. The first is you have to realize is, well, you have to say this, their sin against me, you have to have this realization, was both rebellion and enslavement. See, whenever you sin, you think it's enslavement, right? Oh, I couldn't help it. It was late. I was tired. I fell into sin. I struggle with, oh, really, that's how it works for you. But how about when people sin against you? How could they? They knew what they were doing. It's like, well, the truth is, yes. Sin is always rebellion and enslavement. I I had a biblical counseling professor in seminary, and he had the opportunity to help a victim who was molested by a priest. I know, very intense. He, that man had grown up and was in his 20s or 30s, and he had to help that man forgive the priest who molested him. And he said, one of the key turning moments was to tell this person it was rebellion, and this man is enslaved to the gross passions of his flesh. First thing, you just have to understand what, what, what happened against you is enslavement and rebellion. The second thing is you need, to, you need to write down what they did. What do they do? What, and, and I would encourage you to, you can type it out, but I encourage you to use pen, paper, write it down. What did they do to you? Like, okay, the, you know, my dad left and my, my, my wife left me and now she remarried some other guy and some other guy's tucking my kids in every night. I mean, it, get, it gets deep for people. You'll know you're close to dealing with it when you start to get angry and cry. They're like, okay, I'm close. The third one, this is a deep one. So first is enslavement and rebellion. Second is what did they do? Third, this is a big one. What do they owe me? You know, and it, it gets deep for people. It's like some people's like, you know what my dad owes me? My entire childhood. You know what my ex-husband owes me? 300 grand and three years of my life back. It's like, all right, well, you're never gonna get that. So, you know, you know what my ex-business partner owes me? Like 300 grand. It's like, okay. So you just write down what they owe you. So that's the whole thing. Okay, what do they owe me? The fourth step is the act of faith. You cancel the debt and say, I'm not gonna make them pay. People actually recommend doing something dramatic. Maybe you burn it. Maybe you bury it, maybe you rip it up, maybe you throw it away. And you say, I'm going to actively, by faith, cancel this debt because of Christ. Guys, this is what the Apostle Paul did. At the end of the Apostle Paul's life, read 2 Corinthians or 2 Timothy 4 at the end, end of it before you go to bed tonight. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, he's about to get his head cut off. He said, guys, he writes to the church, he said, Alexander the coppersmith, this is a, not a Christian. He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm He said, the Lord will repay him. Okay, you're not bitter toward him. 
And then he says this, he goes, guys, at my first defense, no Christians came and were with me. So Paul ends his life, he goes, you know what? This, this unbeliever was really mean to me. I'll trust the Lord to repent. And then he says, at my first defense, no one came to my side, all the Christians. He goes, may the Lord not count it against them. And then he ends, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I want you to be set free. I want us to be set free to live at peace and unity with one another and to forgive one another. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray for us in a minute. And then as we sing, I'm just gonna ask you just to have a time of repentance as you sing, to ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in you, to make the gospel real, a present experience of forgiveness that allows you to extend it to whoever you need to. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we've talked about a lot, and forgiveness is such a serious issue that, that the longer we live, the more people we're gonna need to forgive. And the deeper our relationships, the more that there'll need to be forgiveness flowing. Lord, whether it was something deep in our past or that just happened recently, whether it was one big thing or many things, I pray you'd give us the grace to forgive. I pray that our own sin and the reality of grace would be so real in our lives. I pray that we would have a deep, even as we sing this final song, a deep and personal experience of forgiveness that gives us the power and the motivation and the energy to extend it to others. We ask this in Jesus' name.